Well, we're, we're really excited. I'm personally excited to be able to share Brad with you. I, I don't think anybody else has shaped how I see God and the scriptures as much as Brad. And, and so for me personally, I get to share what has absolutely transformed my life just in relationship with this, this man. Um, Brad is a remarkable guy. He, he, he has three kids. Uh, he'll share about his family today, but, uh, he pastored a church in St. Louis for 13 years while he got his PhD in historical theology. So on one hand, he's brilliant, but then he shares it with humor and grace and humility. And so I've known him as my professor. He's worked at Multnomah as a theology professor since 1999, and he continues uh, to just be a, a, a theologian for the church and equipping, uh, equipping students uh, to know Jesus and make him known. And so I'm just excited to share Brad with you today. So Brad, would you come and... Uh, share your story. Good morning. Glad to be here with you. How are we doing? We good on sound? All right. That's great. So, um, so yeah, I want to uh, start out by showing you a picture of my family. So uh, there you go. There it is. Um, that was in Maui uh, in December. Um, it's, tough, it's a tough place to be in December, but somebody's got to go there, right? You know, so uh, uh, Grandma Patty always uh, ha- has a condo right on the beach. She rents it out for a whole month in, uh, after Christmas, and so, so we were there. And, and uh, for a little while, at least, my whole family was there. So uh, it's my wife, Robin, on the left. Uh, we met in college. Uh, she was, in, she was uh, engaged to my best friend. I'll just tell you that. Just this, we won't go into that story, but that's fine. Um, and he's still my best friend. <laughs> so uh, we will be married 32 years this summer. Uh, obviously, that's me next to her. Uh, down in front is my fiery redhead, Bregan. Uh, she is uh, my only daughter. Uh, she'll be 25 in a couple months. Uh, she uh, went to Seattle Pacific. She has worked for Amazon for the last couple of years. She just signed a contract uh, to move to Southern Cal- California and work for Snapchat. And uh, Snapchat's headquarters is on the Venice Beach boardwalk, <laughs> right across from the sand, you know. So she's kind of tired of the gray, wanted to get down and get some, uh, some beach. Uh, over on the right uh, is Corey. That's my youngest. Corey's 21. He actually lives in Venice Beach. Uh, Corey's a... Uh, Corey was our, our X Games crazy guy. He, he broke 10 bones before he got out of high school. Skateboarding craziness. When he was a little boy in St. Louis, one of the interesting things about St. Louis is backyards don't generally have fences. So we, we'd go out and I'd be gardening. He'd be out with, that, that, you know, with me. I'd turn around and he's gone. You know, we called him the wanderer. And we, so we'd sometimes 20 minutes looking around the, the neighborhood trying to find him. I'm talking when he's two years old, three years old. One time he's two years old, found him naked in a construction dumpster. <laughs> Okay, I mean, he just climbed in, thought it was a good place to take his clothes off, you know, so, so he's crazy. Uh, he's, a, he's a songwriter, singer, musician. Um, his life is kind of crazy right now. He just opened up for Justin Bieber a few weeks ago in the Purpose Tour that was here and in Seattle and uh, British Columbia, so he lives in a world that I, I'm not familiar with at all. Um, and then right there in the middle, that's my son, Drew. Drew's my oldest. Uh, Drew is 27. Drew is an actor. He is, uh, he's a singer. He's a writer. He's one of the best writers I know. 
Uh, he's a very talented actor, uh, did a lot of acting here in Portland. Uh, some of you may have seen him. If a couple of years ago you saw Fiddler on the Roof at Portland Center Stage, he was Model the Tailor. Uh, he did uh, The Last Five Years. He did Tick, Tick, Boom. He did uh, Light in the Piazza. He just, for two years, was doing a lot of great stuff in uh, Portland. Lives in L.A. now, uh, in Hollywood. So all my kids are going to be in L.A. starting uh, next month. Uh, Drew's beautiful. Uh, Drew's also gay. Um, he's actively gay, grew up in the church, uh, and, and, and grew up learning about Jesus. Um, and I'll tell you his story a little bit uh, as we go through this. Uh, left the church and decided to embrace uh, being a gay person, living an actively uh, gay lifestyle. In fact, right now, he's in San Francisco. Um, we'll be going to a wedding today, and we'll be bringing his boyfriend home uh, this evening. So that's interesting, huh? Yeah, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. I want you to think about your own experiences with gay and lesbian people. And on this first question, I want you to raise your hand. How many of you know at least one person who's gay or lesbian or transgender? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was at a camp. I was at a camp last summer. Uh, no, two summers ago, and I was speaking on this topic to a bunch of about 200 high schoolers. And this this very, you know, this guy had been at the camp for a long time, an elderly guy. I was asking, "Why do you need to talk about this subject?" I mean, these are Christian kids, Brad. They, they don't deal with this issue. I'm like, "Oh, really?" So I, I just did that same thing when I went in there to give that talk. That every single one, 200 kids, every one of them knows one. They know multiple gay and lesbian kids in their lives. Right? This is an issue for us. I want to ask you just to think about this question, especially those of you who are closer to my age. How did you grow up feeling about gay people? How did you grow up feeling about gay people? And beyond that, what are your impressions and experiences of how the evangelical church has responded to the gay community? You know... We, Protestant evangelicals, we're about evangelism. Uh, scholar David Bebbington has, has described evangelicals in what he calls the, the evangelical quadrilateral. And, and one of those four things that describes us is, is conversionism. We want to see people come to know Jesus. That's so important for us as evangelicals because we really believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. However... I have found that shame is the default expectation in the evangelical Christian community of how people with same-sex attraction should feel about themselves. So let me ask you this. How can a person pursue a relationship with God when they are overwhelmed with shame? You see, shame does not draw us to the other. Shame pushes us away from the other. It causes us to want to hide from the other. Other people, and especially from God. How can a person who experiences same-sex attraction and wants to seek after God believe that Christians will join him or her on that journey if our main response to them is that they should feel ashamed of themselves? Our posture towards gay people is often one of being disgusted and even angry. And again, how will that posture draw people 
to the church and draw people to want to follow Jesus. Not only is the church falling short in loving engagement of the gay community, Christian families are being ripped apart as well. 40% of the kids that are homeless, 40% of the people that are homeless right now in the United States are under 18. 40% of the homeless people in the United States that are sleeping on the street tonight are under 18. And 40% of them self-identify as LGBTQ. Many of them are there because their conservative religious families said, get out. And that's why they're living on the street. You might say to me, but Brad, the Bible says that, that, that gay sex is sinful. Okay. And I'll tell you right up front that it's very clear to me that the Bible does not accept the legitimacy of homosexual sex any more than it accepts the legitimacy of sex outside of marriage. No, it says no to that. Gay sex, as far as I can understand from the scripture, is not okay with God. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. It starts with Genesis, when Genesis tells us that marriage and sex is meant to be between a man and a woman. Two people united together forever. Haven't you read, Jesus says, in supporting this idea, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female, he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is God's vision for marriage. There's no question about it. Leviticus says it's not okay for a man to have sex with another man. In, in the New Testament, um, Paul in Romans 1 says that one of the results of people seeing who God is in nature and rebelling against him, one of the results and one of the practices of rebelling against God that people see in nature is the practice of same-sex relations. So Paul says no to it. 1 Corinthians 6, it's clear there too that, that Paul says no to homosexuality. So, so I want you to know right up front, I'm not soft on this issue in terms of what the Bible says. I think the Bible's clear that gay sex is not okay with God. And I want to tell you that I don't say that with ease. I wish that I could think differently about it for the love of my son. The reason I show you the picture of my family is so that you understand right away that for me, this is not an academic issue. This is very personal. It's about someone who, when I first saw his face, I knew I would give my life for him. And I don't feel any differently today. But the Bible is God's word. And so I need to submit to it. And if it says no to gay sex, I have to go along with that because I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to tell you, too, I've also read uh, the, the, the recent revisionist interpretations of Scripture from, from many who argue, no, we, we have read the, the Bible incorrectly for many years, and, and it, it really doesn't say that. And by the way, there are times when the church reads the Bible incorrectly, right, for a long time. Can you spell Galileo? Did you... That guy, right? Yeah. So is the Bible sometimes is read incorrectly by the church. And we've got scholars today that are saying, we've read the Bible incorrectly. This is just a culture issue. It's, it's, it's you know, Paul's cultural issues back then. It's the Old Testament cultural issues. It doesn't apply to us today. I've read the arguments. I just want to say to you, I don't think they're very good. 
And, and my, my New Testament and Old Testament scholar friends don't think they're very good. So I, I again, I, I, I don't think those turn me away from what the Bible says uh, about gay sex. But the Bible also says something else. And it's right on your wall. I love it. As I saw this today. But the Lord your God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Does God tell you that you have the right to choose which neighbors you love? No. He doesn't. So what does it look like to love your gay neighbor? And that's what we're going to talk about. You see... I wanted to tell you right up front what I think about the Bible because I don't want you to think I'm some crazy liberal. I'm not. But now I want to set that aside. And you know why? Because most of the time that's where we evangelicals stop. We go, okay, I understand all the passages now that say that gay sex is wrong. Next topic? No. Because that same text says you need to love your neighbor. And this is where we struggle as evangelicals. So this is what we're going to talk about today what it looks like to love our gay neighbors. For me, uh, my next-door neighbors are actually gay. Uh, they're lesbians. <laughs> We've lived next to them for 13 years. They're wonderful. Um, um, we take their daughter to church, their, their eight-year-old daughter to church, and she loves it. And they're so glad that we take her to church. One of them wrote a note to Robin last, last summer. I said, Robin, thank you for being such a good neighbor, and thank you for taking our daughter to church so that she can find out about God. Yes! <laughs> right? But my love relationship with Drew is where my love for my gay neighbor starts. So let me tell you a little bit about my journey with him. From age two, Drew was drawn to beauty. Um, He would go to church when he was two years old. Literally, he would go to church and he would bend out and he would touch women's shoes. Because they were colorful and shiny and, and sometimes they had like sequins on them and stuff. You know, like men's shoes, pretty boring. You know, same thing with, you know, dressing up. When he would dress up as a little boy, he always dressed up in mom's clothes. They're colorful and flowy and wonderful. My clothes, pretty boring. It's the way he was from times he was a little kid. He had amazing gifts. I would go into his room. We loved to read. We read, read every night. I'd go and pick up a children's book and read it to him. And I'd, I'd go in sometimes at night and say, well, well, what book do you want to read, Drew? And he'd tell me. And, and I'd say, okay, let, here, let me have it. I'll read it to you. He said, no, thanks. That's, a, that's okay, Daddy. I memorized it. So after I'd read it to him two or three times, he'd memorize the whole book. And, and he could read it back to me. Uh, his natural interests were in things like art and writing poetry. This is as a five, six, and seven-year-old, uh, writing plays, memorizing Shakespeare. He used to go, uh, before dinner, he would go and sit down and memorize a Shakespearean sonnet and then come and say it to us at the table, you know, uh, for, for dinner. He loved singing and acting. From the time he was uh, eight, nine, and ten, he uh, had this deal with the kids on our cul-de-sac called the uh, First Annual, Second Annual, and Third Annual uh, Broadway Musical Review. And for a week in the summer, he'd bring all the kids from the neighborhood in, and they'd spend a week, they would make costumes, he would teach them songs, they would take them through choreography, you know, and on, and on Friday nights, all the parents would come and they'd do a Broadway musical review for us. And it was incredible. It's amazing. But he had no interest in sports, no interest in guns, no interest in blowing things up, no interest in fly, frying bugs on the sidewalk with a magnifying glass. He just wasn't interested in those things that, that were like boy things, right, that culture tells us about. Drew's elementary age socialization, because of all this, was very difficult. 
he tended to like doing the stuff that culture says girls are supposed to do. Some of the stuff I just mentioned to you. And so he was most comfortable with them. At age five, I remember him coming into our house and throwing himself on, on the chair, crying and saying, Dad, why didn't God make me a girl? He felt so much more like them than like boys. And the reality is, he was crucified by his male peers. Little children are wonderful and awful. Right? Wow. By the time he was in third grade, um, we found in his daily schoolwork uh, a note telling about how he wanted to kill himself. By fifth grade, he was so fearful of owning his own identity that he began to take on others, which was easy for him as a, as a boy who loved acting. And when we moved from St. Louis to, 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 to Vancouver, Washington, when, when he was entering into the fifth grade, he thought, never told us about this, thought, this is great, I, I get to take on a new identity. People, especially boys, don't like my real identity, so I'm going to take on a new one. And he pretended to be a prince from this fictional Scottish island called Haran, you know, uh, in, 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 in one of these archipelagos off the northern coast of Scotland, spoke in a total Sean Connery brogue, and like all day. Every day. Told them all about palace intrigue and arranged marriages and all this type of stuff that went on. They believed him for three months. <laughs> Till finally, they found out he was yanking their chains. And oh boy, was that difficult. Counselor called us in and said, why would he do this? How do you tell an adult that you've never met about the fact that your little boy has been so crucified just for being who he is and loving the thing he loves for those that he wants to have relationships with for so long that it's too painful for him to be himself. So he tries to be somebody else that people will like. At the end of seventh grade, he told us about his awareness of his attraction to boys and had his first sexual experience. Uh, I took him to uh, ex-gay counseling, uh, and he was very submissive. He, he wanted to find victory in Christ over this issue. From, when Drew was a little boy, as authentically as anyone I can imagine, he invited Jesus into his life to be Lord and Savior. And he lived that reality out through the, through the middle of high school, really. And, and everything in me as I saw him and watched him and listened to him said this was a boy who really did love Jesus and wanted to honor him with his life. And he used to say, Dad, God's grace is going to help me with this. And we took walks many nights of the week talking about that in our neighborhood. When he was in high school, he desperately wanted to be accepted by other boys in the youth group. But I also remember one night where he came to me as a, as a freshman or sophomore in high school and said, Dad... I could never tell the boys in the church youth group what I struggle with. Because if I did, the relationship would be over just like that. I already struggle enough with them not understanding me. And if I tell them that, it's over. 
took him to more therapy and counseling throughout high school. He went mostly, I think, to please me. It wasn't a very positive experience. His anger began to grow with the church and with us. And eventually, uh, between his junior and senior year in high school, he broke with the church entirely. Walked into my room one Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, said, this is it. I'm done. I'm not going to church anymore. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I'm gay. That's the way I am, and that's the way I'm going to live. Um, And that led to a couple really tough years for us. Nevertheless, it would be difficult to imagine a father and son closer than Drew and I have been since the time he was a little boy. So for me, while I believe my son's sexual life is not okay with God, the choice of whether or not to love him simply isn't an issue. He knows what I believe about God and sex. And the fact that I love him does not make him think that I believe it's okay. My unconditional love for him does not make him think, oh, dad, you've changed your view on sex. No, he knows I haven't. So let me just kind of help you understand for a little bit here. What do do gay people think about us as evangelicals? Recent research uh, shows that uh, a a project was done uh, with 16 to 29-year-old non-Christians in the U.S., okay? 16 to 29, all of them non-Christians, and they were all straight. They, they weren't, none of them were gay, and asked them their view of Christians. The number one impression they had, this is thousands of young people, number one impression they had of Christians is, you're anti-gay. 91% of them had as their first thing, Christians are anti-gay, evangelical Christians are anti-gay. What a thing to, to be known for. Isn't that great? What did Jesus say? Um, and you, you will be known as my disciples by your what? Love. But when they survey young people in America, what we're known by is that we're anti-gay. Questions gay people have of us. If if gay people are going to come into this church today, and there are gay people in your church, if 5% of Americans, 5% of people deal with this issue, there are people here who struggle with this, whether you know it or not. And if people come into your church and are struggling with this issue, what are some of the questions they might have of you? And I get some of these questions from Andrew Marin in his book, Love is an Orientation, which is a great place to start, by the way, in terms of looking at this issue. How can I possibly relate to Christians in a church environment? How can I relate to them? Will Christians always look at me as just gay? In other words, if a person comes in and you find out they're gay, they're wondering, is that all you're going to see me as? Is, Is just a gay person? Do they think... Homosexuality is a special sin. Nod your heads. Yes, we do. And that is how we react. That is how we treat homosexuality, unbiblical as that may be. Do they believe I chose to be like this? Yeah. Many, many evangelicals think that people who are gay, they just chose to be that way. Do they think I'm going to hit on them? That's interesting. We don't wonder about that with heterosexual people. Why would we wonder about it with gay people? But we do. Um, do they think I'm going to abuse, your ch- abuse their children? Nod your heads. Yes, we do. It is, con- it is a constant in evangelical churches that when a gay person is in the church, especially a gay man, um, first thing that's often said is we've got to keep that, that guy away from our kids because he'll abuse, abuse our kids. That's so problematic. You realize that homosexuality and pedophilia are completely different realities. Your children are much more likely to be abused by a heterosexual person than a homosexual person. And, and yet we, we just still think, you know, we've got to keep them away from our kids. Are they afraid that I'm going to infect them with HIV? 
and when, not if, but when will I be rejected? So how do you think someone with these kinds of questions is going to feel around you when they find that you're a Christian? It's going to be tough. They're immediately going to feel distanced from you. Trust me, I'm in the gay community a lot. <laughs> and that's exactly how they feel about me when they find about who I am. Whoa, you're dangerous. So what does a Christian response to the gay community look like? First, the response needs to be, Matt, this won't surprise you, the response needs to be Trinitarian and relational. Our primary goal in engaging gay persons should not be to get them to agree that homosexuality is wrong, but to come to know God through the love of Christ. God does not save us by beginning with judgment. He saves us by beginning with love. First verse I ever learned from the Bible, we love him because... Yes, people are transformed by love, not uh, by judgment. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. The response needs to be relational, Trinitarian. The response needs to be incarnational. God engages us by coming into our broken, hopeless world and takes us upon Himself by becoming one of us. He understands then what it's like to be us. He knows our pain and responds in compassion. Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by humankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held Him in low esteem. Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we consider Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is God's incarnational act of engaging us in love. So the question is, what would it look like for us to engage the gay community in the spirit of this passage of laying ourselves down for our neighbors, for the ones that God loves? Let me give you some suggestions. Ways we can respond uh, to the gay community. And again, a few of these I get from Andrew Mayer and others are from my own experience. First, we need to apologize. We need to apologize for how the evangelical Christian community has treated the gay community. Think Westboro Baptist. Because you know what? That's what they think when they think of evangelical Christians. And you might answer, well, why should, why should I apologize? I'm not Westboro Baptist. I've never done anything like that to a gay person. But guess what? Westboro Baptists identifies themselves as part of the evangelical community. And when the LGBT world thinks about evangelicals, they think about that. And the fact is that we are a part of a larger community, whether we've done it or not, that has done horrible things to gay people and to the LGBT community. Let me tell you a little story about that. When we, were, when we finally realized we were going to write this book, uh, this must have been about a year and a half ago. Um, we sat down with a guy who was going to be our, our literary agent and event, eventually ended up being our publisher. Um, he's on the board of directors at, at Multnomah. And, and Drew had never met him, and I, I knew this guy. I said, Drew, um, you, you need to meet this guy. He said, I don't know, evangelical Christian. I think we should go with a secular publisher. You know, this is just going to be a drag. So we sat down in this pub to, to just talk about what this might look like got through the niceties of introductions, and then our publisher looked at Drew and he said, Drew, 
Before we go anywhere else, I just want to apologize to you. I want to tell you I'm really sorry for ways in which my community has treated you and your community. Totally disarmed all of Drew's reticence. We spent the next two hours talking about what this project might look like, and we walked out, and on the way to the car, the first thing Drew says to me is, we're going with him. We're going with him. I like that guy. Second, listen to their stories. Actually have them tell you their stories. Listening to their stories does not mean you think their lifestyle is fine with God. But you begin by understanding rather than judgment. And I just want to tell you something. When you meet LGBT people and you sit down and talk to them and they open up with you and you say to them, tell me your story. You know one of the things you're going to hear a lot is how they were brutalized and rejected by the church. You're going to hear that often. And, and, and that's a place for you to enter in and start to think, okay, okay, how can I make this look different? Third, you need to learn to separate orientation from attraction. You need to learn to separate orientation from attraction. Uh, or I'm sorry, orientation and attraction from behavior. Separate orientation from behavior. Um, I believe the sin of homosexuality is not in the attraction, but one, what one does with it. It's similar with a heterosexual person. Do heterosexual people who are Christians walk by, see somebody who's not their spouse, and feel sexual attractions toward them? Yes. Is that a sin? No. It's called temptation. Temptation is not a sin. Now, if you nurture it, and you think about it, and you think, if I could do this and get away with it, nobody would find out about it, I would do it, well, that's sin. But the attraction itself is just the fact that you're broken, right? Like everybody is. So you need to separate that because the reason it's important for us as a church to separate orientation or attractions from behavior is because if a, if a, if a gay person comes into the church and you say, you need to repent of your attractions, how is he going to do that? That's like telling me, stop liking steak. <laughs> you can't do that. I mean, unless you just don't like it, but you, you can stop what? You can stop eating it, but you, you can't stop liking it, all right? So, so it's so important for us uh, to, to think in those terms. Um, someone who is tempted by God to gossip in the church but decides out of the love of Christ not to do it, they're not sinning. They're, they're actually obeying God. So we need, we need to think in terms of separating orientation from behavior. Um, that's the only way we can welcome gay people into our community and make them feel uh, like they belong to us. Now, I want to tell you also this. Don't do that in the gay community, okay? You cannot go into the gay community and say, well, you know, we're going to separate, you know, attraction from behavior, and we, we don't like your behavior, but, you know, but your attraction is fine. It won't work in the gay community. Let me say, tell you why. It's called, it's one word. It's called Stonewall, okay? You need to know the history of the gay pride movement. 1969, right in the Stonewall Inn in New York City. Um, the reason this riot went on was because back then... Um, before Stonewall in many cities around the United States, one could get fined, put in jail, be placed in a mental institution without a hearing for any of the following acts. Two people of the same sex holding hands, two people of the same sex dancing with one another, bars that served alcohol to gay people were fined, publicly declaring oneself to be gay. You'd be, you'd be put in, a, in jail or a mental institution just without anything, without you know, any, any kind of even legal trial. Uh, for this. And finally, the gay community said no. And they rebelled and they said, stop it, we're not going to take this anymore. And so, what you have to understand for the gay community, what they fought for was not their 
their attractions and their orientation. Nobody could take that from them. What they fought for was their behavior. So when we tell them we love you, but we hate your behavior, to them that says you hate me. Okay? Now, is that right? Are we really doing that? No. But I'm telling you, that's how they're going to hear it. So love the sinner, hate the sin? Nope. Does not work in ministry to the gay community. So just get that sentence out of your vocabulary uh, when you're going to deal with the LGBT community. A fourth issue. Move beyond the cause issue. Move beyond the cause issue. I'm just going to encourage you to forget trying to figure out what the cause of homosexuality is. First of all, it doesn't matter because the reality is that if people are going to walk with Jesus Christ, they need to learn to walk with Jesus Christ, whatever the cause of their issues are. Second is, evangelicals are rabid about not wanting it to be genetic. And the reason we don't want it to be genetic is because it's genetic, we can't fix it. But if it's like, oh, you had a bad relationship with your father, or, you know, oh, you were abused as a child, then we go, oh, we can just get this guy some counseling and then he'll be straight. It doesn't work that way. Um, years of sociological study has shown that it doesn't work that way. And the fact is, the best people, the best scientists, Christians, who are scientists who are doing work on this, are telling us that there are multiple causes for it and we simply just don't know what it is. So we need to move beyond that. Um, fifth, we need to move past some of our typical responses and take the conversation to a different and better level. We need to be careful about getting into bait, to debates. This is What's going to engage the gay community is not for us to get in arguments about right and wrong. Um, it, 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 it doesn't help. Uh, what's going to engage the, gay, engage the gay community is listening and loving. We need, to be get, we need to get over being disgusted by gay people, okay? I just need to tell you that. You need to get over it. Because let me just put it for you in these terms, and this is as relational as I can do it for you. When you, th- when you talk about gay people, and this is the most common word I've heard from when I was in high school, gay people are disgusting. You're talking about my son. And yes, he's gay. And no, I don't think God approves of that. But you know what? He is also beautiful. He loves his neighbor. He always fights for the underdog. He's got wonderful gifts and loves to use them to see people find joy. He's a beautiful young man. He's not disgusting any more than the rest of us are with all of our ugly sins. We need to change the definition of what it means to be bold for Christ. For so many of us as evangelicals on this issue of the LGBT community, what it means to be bold for Christ is to make sure no gay people come into my house. One of Drew's Drew's family members, my generation family member, when he asked her one time years ago if, if I came to your house with my husband, would you let us come in? And she said no. I can't do that. I have to stand up for Jesus. So I would meet you in a neutral location. Do you know what happened to her influence in my son's life? Gone. Gone. We need to be vulnerable and transparent to our gay friends. We need to let them know about our struggles and our weaknesses. Why? Because they think we're self-righteous. That's why. And we need to disabuse them of that notion right away and let them know about the issues that we struggle with in following Christ. And we need to let go of the idea that the most important thing we can do is get a gay person 
to agree with us about their sexuality and then to change. This is a rationalistic, behaviorist approach to Christianity. It's like having a youth group sex talk and telling your youth group, just keep your hands off each other. What does that say? You guys have been studying about sexuality. What does that say about sex? It's dangerous. It's wrong. It's scary. Stay away from it. It's probably dirty and ugly. No. We need to talk to our kids about the beauty of gender and sexuality and then help them understand how it works well. Not change your behavior, keep your hands off one another. And, and, and so we need to make it so that our, our main goal is not to get gay people to agree with us and change their behavior. Nine, I haven't been numbering them, but this is number nine. <laughs> you need to look for the image of God in your gay neighbors. Did you hear that? You need to look for the image of God in your gay neighbors because you know what? All human beings are made in the image of God. Hitler was made in the image of God. Do you know that? And if you end up sitting next to him at the marriage supper of the Lamb because in the last second of his life he received Jesus' grace, hallelujah! What could be more wonderful? That's the grace of God, right? All human beings are made in the image of God. My next door neighbors are lesbians. I don't think God's pleased with their sex, but they are beautiful lovers of their children. They, they, they care for their neighbors. There's so many beautiful things about them. And why are they there? Because they're made in the image of God. That's why. And so we need to look at those things and affirm those things, even though we have to know, say no to something else. Because not everything about a gay person is horrible. Right? The things that they do and think and feel that are because they're made in the image of God, those are beautiful. And those are things for which we go and and we look and we say, thank God. And sometimes we look at the beauty and the wonder in their lives in terms of how they love each other and love their neighbors. And perhaps sometimes we ought to think, maybe I ought to be more like that. Maybe they're better lovers than me in terms of how they care and lay their lives down for other people. What about persons who are attracted to the same sex and claim to be Jesus followers? Well, are there persons who are attracted to gossiping who are Jesus followers? Yeah. Okay? We're, we're all just in this journey together. There's, Christian and kids, there's, there's kids in Christian homes around this country who begin to realize their same-sex attractions and they start praying like mad for God to take it away. And he doesn't. And here's the conclusions they often come to when God does not respond that way. I might as well immerse myself in the gay world since God is not changing me. Or, God must have already condemned me to hell. And I'm going there anyway. Or, there is no God. My dad was an alcoholic. And in the 1960s, the way that... And he wasn't a believer. In the 1960s, the way the church used to deal with alcoholics is to say, you've got two choices. Either go get fixed or shut up. Because we don't want to know about it. Now we can bring alcoholics on the stage in a Christian church and and Dave could walk up here and put his arm around a guy and say, this is my friend Bob, and Bob's an alcoholic, and he wants to follow Jesus and he wants your help. And we'd be going what? Yeah! You know where the evangelical church is not at yet? Maybe you are here. I hope so. But we're not at the place yet where a pastor can walk up and say, this is my friend Bob, and Bob is gay. And Bob wants to follow Jesus. Will you help him? And that's where we need to say yes. Yes, we will.
Let me talk to you a little bit about our book. Um, Space at the Table, which we finished just a couple months ago. We were just in the uh, recording studio all day on Thursday and Friday, uh, recording an audio version of it. So it's, it's in paper, it's on Kindle, and next month it'll be uh, audio. It's the story of our staying and loving relationship in the midst of strong disagreement on an issue that goes to the core of both of our identities, Drew's and mine, as we understand them. It includes battles over what kind of behavior would be allowed in our house once he told us that he was gay and he was going to live that way. It includes tension so brutal that Drew decided for a while to go live with a friend in his senior year of high school. And it deals with my own feelings of failure as a father that my son would no longer live with me. It includes face-the-music questions, like one that came during a phone call from New York when Drew said to me, Dad, would you rather have me in a committed relationship with a guy who loves me or having sex with a different guy every night whose names I don't even know? Now, I had to tell you my response was, well, neither one of those is really in my top ten list. But you know what? That's a no-brainer. Sitting at the dinner table in our home surrounded by delightful people who also happen to be gay or lesbian and thinking, this is not exactly the family scenario I dreamed of when Robin and I got married. It's been brutal. It's been enlightening through this journey and through writing this book and through the love of my son. God has made, a, made me a better follower of Jesus and a better lover of my neighbor. Let me tell you one final story, then I'm done. So when Drew was in uh, Fiddler on the Roof a couple of years ago, um, uh, w- one of the guys uh, that he started, had a relationship with in the, in the show uh, was a young man from New York City. And, um, and he was gay, right? And he was, Brad, isn't it just a stereotype that there's lots of gay men in theater? Yes, it's a stereotype. And there's lots of gay men in theater, okay? <laughs> it's just the way it is, all right? And you know, we just welcomed this guy into our lives and loved him and cared for him. And after that went on for a while, we, towards the the end of the show, uh, show's run, we were out to breakfast with him one day in Portland. And he looked across the table at me and he said, Brad, what is it that so captivates you about Jesus Christ? He's asking me to tell him the gospel. And I'm like, I think I can do that. But see, this only happens when we begin with love and acceptance and open arms. And that becomes transforming so that people get to the place and say, Brad, what is it about you? What is it about this Jesus? And friends, that has happened to me over and over again. And it's what can happen to us in the church. When we love our neighbors as ourselves. God of grace, um, may you be the God of of love who descends upon this place with such power that those who are part of the LGBT community will say, I don't agree with those people, but that's a place of love. That's a place where I can be loved. May this be that kind of place that people may be captivated by the overwhelming love of Jesus Christ and be drawn to him to surrender their lives to him in love and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.